0: you're listening to trucking questions from the audio road with kevin rutherford this is the show that puts the money where it belongs back in your pocket you can ask questions about trucks money fuel mileage maintenance tires tax technology or anything else about the business of trucking here we go
1: let's head on down the audio road Thanks for joining us. We have got an exciting announcement this week. I'll tell you what it is right now, and uh, you can get ready. We are expanding the power hour to two full hours starting today. That is uh, by demand. We, we get lots of questions. So today is your chance. If you've had trouble getting through to us on the show, you should be able to get through today. The sooner you press one on your phone, the better your odds are going to be. So um, we will either continue to take questions for the power hour as long as we have them and then switch to general questions, or we will do two full hours. And going forward, this will give us the opportunity to not only answer more questions, but we'll be bringing you more detailed information on all kinds of things. So Uh, We're looking forward to that again if you have a question a comment a topic go ahead and press one on your phone calls are starting to come in really heavy questions are still light so you have an opportunity right now. I'll keep you updated on the call volume as we go. Let's get started.
2: Your money, your taxes, your truck, and your road to success in the trucking industry. This is Trucking Business and Beyond, the show that puts the money where it belongs. Back in your pocket.
1: Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking, and today is the Power Hour. I've got the guys from Pittsburgh Power with me, Bruce and Ethan and John, and we're going to get to your calls and questions in a little bit. We can take calls and answer questions about everything maintenance, fuel mileage, modifications, horsepower, torque, upgrades, troubleshooting, electrical systems, you name it, we'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and ask the question. We're going to get to those questions in a little bit. I'm going to bring the guys in. Bruce, Ethan, John, welcome back, guys. Well, thank you
3: for having us, and we look forward to doing the two-hour show.
1: Yeah, it's exciting.
3: Yes, it is. We've had many, many owner-operators tell us we need to do it more often, so this is a start.
1: There you go. John, Ethan, you guys with us? Yes, we are. We're here. All right. So, do we uh, do we have anything to open with today? I know going forward, we talked about uh, developing some theme shows and maybe picking a topic. So we'll work into that. What do we have today?
3: Uh,
0: Ethan's got time. a topic
1: he'd like to talk about. I've
0: got a I've got one as well. So I, I think we could take turns. We have a little more time now, so we don't don't have to rush through this.
3: Yeah. There you go. We all right
0: just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about troubleshooting. We've uh, I'm really proud of the work our guys in the shop are doing right now, especially along the troubleshooting end, and actually following uh, the trees and, and approved methods of, of actually troubleshooting problems. We had a uh, Packard MX in here last week. It'll uh, be back here shortly. We're going to do a little tuning on and add an OPS to it. But uh, a fellow had been fighting a check engine light for two and a half years. of only having the thing serviced at you know, factory shops. And they've put an injector in it. They've put a harness in it. they put a, a unit pump in it. That engine uses what, what are called unit pumps for each uh, each cylinder. It's got a pump that rides on the camshaft that uh, boosts the fuel pressure for the injection. And it had a bunch of parts thrown out it. The guy struggled with this thing for two and a half years. And it's our test truck we've been trying to do some tuning on. And it had a check engine light. And I'm like, we can't do it until the check engine light straightened out. And we went through it, and we found that the thing had a worn-out camshaft. So someone threw a whole bunch of parts at it. Dealers threw a whole bunch of parts at it, never actually fixed it. And when we discovered that it was a camshaft, I have a friend at Packard, and I knew there was a recall on some of those. And it turns out this VIN number didn't fit with that recall. But the fella told me that you you have a major parts warranty that goes to a half million miles. So if you're a Packard uh, owner out there... Your major parts warranty is a half million miles, so crankshaft, connecting rods, um, camshaft, cylinder head are all covered under warranty for a half mil, which I thought was interesting. So rather than take the fellow's money and repair it here, which I would have loved to have done, he was within a half million miles and within the five years. So we sent him off to the local dealer, and they're actually putting a uh, camshaft in it. We're going to get it back here to install an OPS and do some other work on it. But uh, interesting. I mean, it's it amazes me the stories that I hear people come in and, and have shops out there in the world, just throw parts at their, at their truck. It's, uh, you know, we may spend a little time and Bruce gets mad when we chop time from bills and things, but, uh, I really, really, uh, have an aversion to, to throwing parts on stuff. And, you know, every, 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 now and then you get into that situation where you have to try something, but, uh, yeah, we try to do our best always to troubleshoot it properly.
3: You know, you I, I read ha- the part of the letter that he sent, talking about ethan Do you have that in front of me john I, I don't have it in front of me bruce i do not
0: uh we're, we're at your desk not mine i could bring it up on my email if i wasn't mine um the uh it was uh, actually that was uh sean church who did that yeah sean church did the troubleshooting Oh, that's sean, right. sean church is becoming a really really good troubleshooter he's uh he's very disciplined in following the uh, troubleshooting trees and he's he's getting better every day he, he, he's really good but uh, yeah, I'd, I'd shared that with Kevin. I sent that off to Kevin that letter. Um,
1: not
3: but sure he's going to. Do you have that, otherwise.
1: Kevin? That's what I was just going to mention. Uh, I, I was going to talk about just the letter in general. Uh, the owner of this truck wrote a very long, detailed letter explaining everything he went through. And John, you just did a great job of summarizing it. But when you read this letter, you hear the frustration and the cost and and everything he went through and how frustrating it was for him, and then the relief when you guys found the problem. I mean, it, it you, you got the feeling as he was going through this for two and a half years that he just got to the point where he was hopeless, that there was just never going to be a fix for this truck.
0: Yeah, I was really, really glad to be able to help him. It was, uh, it, it was a good project, and like I said, it was just uh... – Really, it was following the rules. It was following the uh, the troubleshooting tree in the manual to a T is what got us there. You know, those things are written for a
1: reason, and uh, it worked. You know, John, it's interesting you say that because I don't remember. This had to be four or five years ago when I really started getting frustrating, frustrated with the calls that I kept getting on the air. I've been to this dealer and that dealer, and six dealers have looked at it. Nobody knows what's wrong, and and they would ask me. Do you know what's wrong? I don't have a clue. I mean, I looked at it. You know, these guys are trained. They're they've got their hands on it. They're and and if they can't figure it out, but I got so frustrated hearing that call over and over that I went and found um, borrowed the manuals, and I, I was shocked at how detailed the troubleshooting trees were. And I looked at it and I said, wait a minute, they show you exactly how to figure out this problem. And I started asking guys, did they do this? Oh no, they never did any of that stuff. And I'd ask the technicians, why aren't you doing, oh, that doesn't work anyway. That's not how we do it around here. (laughs) And I looked at it and I thought, why did these engine manufacturers bother writing all these really detailed trees? I mean, these were, I was very impressed by them. And I thought, you know, if I had a truck that I couldn't solve the problem on my way, whatever their way was, why wouldn't you try this? And now to hear you say you follow these things and it works—that's what I thought four years ago, and everybody told me I was crazy.
0: <laughs> no, you were absolutely right. We, we've doubled up now. We've got, like I said, we've got access to, to Commons factory manuals. We've got access to the PACAR now that we, you know, we're, we're on online with them now, and we've also uh, upgraded to Mitchell. We've got the Mitchell system here now, so that's got a lot of troubleshoot, That anything. I mean, I could look up chassis wiring harnesses and such on there now, and they they have an interesting method. Mitchell does of using schools, the uh, tech schools, who get to take vehicles apart and so forth to to help write their manuals. So there's some hands-on and some real real-time stuff there, and they also go to shops and they they get input from shops as well and uh, previous experience works in. So it's uh, become a database of, of previous problems we have to look up to in, in that. So. We're, we're stepping it up in that department. We're trying to really pick it up with the, uh, you know, the manuals and the troubleshooting trees and, and, and some information there.
1: Yeah, uh, Bruce, I've got the letter here. I'm going to read a couple excerpts out of here. I'm not going to go through it all because, like I say, it's really detailed about all the problems he had for two and a half years. But I'll go through what, you know, finally solved this. This is right word for word from the owner. It says, At no time over this period of time, which was about two and a half years, was the proper diagnosis made as to the cause of the problem until technician Sean Church of Pittsburgh Power had the persistence and knowledge to discover the origin and root cause of the problem. During all of this time period, it was apparent that it was a mechanical problem. The camshaft was failing big time. You would have thought that if someone was replacing an injector, that they should have time to, to at least do a perfunctory visual look at the camshaft for wear. Then he, he goes on um, and later on says, and I love this. It's a, a great, you know, promotion plug, whatever you want to say for Pittsburgh Power. But this is true. It says the Pittsburgh Power Organization, in my opinion, is one of the best things That has ever been the good fortune to happen for the owner operator to this date. My experience are that their reputation for diagnosis and service is underlined and proven on a daily basis. Their attitude reminds me of the old commercial message that stated how much better any product would be if the people responsible for any final product would have to sign their name to that product. Uh, shop manager, John Walco displays an attitude and knowledge that makes for a great service experience. I can't thank him enough for everything he's done to expedite. It just goes on and on and on. Um, first off all the problems he had everywhere else he's been and what an experience this was solving the problem. That's pretty amazing. Yeah,
0: I'm pretty proud of that one. I really, really am. It's, uh,
1: you know, Kevin I believe you know Roger
0: Penske's got a quote that says you have to improve or win and so to me you you constantly improve if if you pound your chest and say we're the best we're the best we're the best that that that's a good way to go backwards in a hurry and yeah you know, for me and in my attitude and that hopefully the effect I try to have on the shop here is we need to continue, always try you just never ever give up and uh and either that's gaining knowledge or or experience or or whatever but you just don't even think about where we are and how we are but but how we do it and what we can do to make these things better and how we can better serve our customers
1: absolutely great stuff hey we're going to get to a break we're going to come right back we've got more stuff and we'll be getting to your calls and questions as well stick around I'm Kevin Rutherford Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rothford. This is the power hour. I've got Bruce and John and Ethan with me from Pittsburgh power. And, uh, what else do we got guys?
2: Ethan. Uh, my other thing was the new thing about the electronic locks and how there's mandated on some trucks and a lot of companies are going to them now too. Um, And issues with the Qualcomm, we're seeing a lot of shops are having issues diagnosing the problems with them communicating properly on the the data link into the ECM. Um, So far, we've been pretty successful at solving most of the problems that have come through the door. Um, Some of them are as simple as the ECM, you know, 20 years ago, no one thought about you have to hook on an electronic log. So some of the parameters in there are just not turned on. Um, And other ones are such as dog chewed through my, you know, cable um, and putting it back together. Yes, We
0: we recently had one of those.
2: Yeah, that's where it came from. (laughs) Uh, I had a combination of two things between the dog and the ECM and really set them back on that one. But anything can happen there. But we've been seeing a lot more of those. And I think we're going to hear about that more frequently, being that it's, you know, the mandates starting to take effect there.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to see a lot more of that going on. You know, that kind of sounds like the dog ate my homework excuse to me, though. <laughs> yeah, but he, he wasn't lying that time. But He, he had
3: the proof. <laughs> yeah. Ethan, what about the one that needed the new ECM?
2: That's also a possibility. Um, you know, not all these ECMs are were you know planned upon twenty some years ago that to to work with an electronic log, or there could be an internal hardware problem that's preventing it from
1: you know broadcasting the data appropriately. So, Ethan, have you um, had to deal with? trucks older than 99 with this because the mandate is nine and I'm not sure exactly how we determine the cutoff on this. I need to go figure that out. But the mandate for ELDs is 99 and newer or 2000 and newer, 99 and older e- exempt. I, I don't know exactly where that cutoff is. Um, but but that doesn't mean that a carrier could require it of an owner operator. Uh, it just, the, and the federal yeah. mandate yeah
2: and we're seeing that a lot more carriers are, are mandating it though as well. Yeah, they're, they're trying to not just make one one you know a group of trucks do it. they want all
1: their trucks on it. Yeah, it would seem to me like that's where you're go- going to run into the real issues because I, I would think, I know this is the government we're talking about, but I would think they picked that year 99 for a specific reason knowing that the prior ECMs weren't really set up for this.
2: Yes. And some of them were, and some of them aren't. And you you really don't know which ones are and which ones aren't. Okay.
1: So that makes sense.
2: Try to
3: pick us. The year 99. uh, That's that was 98 can be a D deck three or a D deck four on an N 14 that was the change over from the select to the select plus. And on a Caterpillar, that's whenever you went from the 40 pin to the 70 pin ECM. So that's why that year was picked. That would make sense. That's
1: it. All right. What else we got?
0: Let's see. That was what I well, had. Oh, I sent you another, uh, uh, Reading really interesting uh we can maybe save this for another show do a little teaser now but I, I sent you a really cool sae paper on platooning and its benefits and uh it was interesting it popped up in my email this morning i get a uh, newsletter thing from the society of automotive engineers every day and there's a message board there and the topic of discussion today was platooning so the, through that i linked to some interesting stuff and uh, some CFD work that had been done. You know, the CFD is uh, computational fluid dynamics, which is uh, basically using a supercomputer for a wind tunnel. So you could put a, a drawing basically in a wind tunnel on your computer and see what it does. But it explains the benefits really clearly, and uh, it's 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 interesting. It really is. You know, I, I believe it's the the toe in the water for the the, uh, the autonomy for the you know the automated trucks completely. But it's uh, it's the benefits are huge. It's a pretty big deal.
1: Yeah, I've got the, the report up here in front of me, but I literally just opened it as I was opening up the show here, and it looks pretty long and detailed. So I've got some reading ahead oh, of it, me. And- yeah, yeah. We, we
0: could save that for another show. It was, uh, I was over lunch, I was having lunch at my desk and reading through some emails, and I I love that uh, SAE message board. So when I yeah. got, it got to that, so I thought I'd forward that on to you as soon as I saw that one, but it was interesting. Yeah, that looks, but yeah, it looks like. That,
1: I'll dive into that and we'll uh, save that for another show. The, the CFD, um, I, I got a chance to go down and, and uh, work with the guys at uh, Smart Truck uh, for a couple of right, days, yeah, a yep, couple yep. years ago. And, and we went through all the and what was really amazing to me was the cost of doing this. Now, it's a whole lot cheaper than a wind tunnel. Wind tunnels, you know, for big trucks are almost out of the question. Um, but CFD, you said supercomputer that this isn't something you can build. This is something they had to go rent time on the supercomputer to run these scenarios around all of their aerodynamic stuff. And honestly, when it came to trailer aerodynamics and you see all the companies that came out with side skirts and, you know, these different modifications, and I would call these companies because I was interested and I would say, you know, what kind of testing did you do? And, you know, some of them from the answer you got, you could tell they did almost nothing like they just figured, oh, we'll slap some, you know, pieces of sheet metal up on the side of the trailer and it'll work. When I got down to smart truck and started looking at their testing and I started asking questions like, you know, well, if if you mount the under tray here, you know, I've got this guy who has belly boxes and he can't put it there. We'd have to shift it back. And they said, well, don't bother. It's not going to work. And I'd say, "What do you mean? Right. It looks like it'll direct the air right where we want it." And they'd go, "No, a half an inch. If you move that a half an inch, you change what we're trying to do." And and they were able to prove that through all of their CFD testing. Oh, you know the world I,
0: where I come from. It's, I understand the how, how finite all of that is. And as you know Steve Wolf down there at the Smart is a good friend of mine. He's another racing refugee, and uh, he, he's a, he's a really clever guy. And uh, they're under truck treatment to me is head and shoulders above everything else. Uh, the way that uh, the piece that goes in front of the axles there directs the air to fill in the void behind the truck to help uh, alleviate the low pressure behind the truck is brilliant and uh, way beyond me, any of the skirting or anything else that you can do. But uh, and, you know, he's got the CFD to prove it and wind tunnel and testing and everything. So it's, it's that's neat stuff. Uh, there was a, uh, uh I don't know if any, anyone follows uh, F1 like I do, but Fernando Alonso is coming. He's an ex-Formula 1 champion from Europe, and he's going to come run the Indy 500 this year. And did his first test last week uh, at, at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. He did his rookie test. And if you read the article, uh, it was televised on the Internet and had over 2 million viewers, which was huge. But uh, there's a little piece of trim, a little piece of Lexan that they put in the front of the cockpit just ahead of the driver to limit buffeting on the driver's head. Well, it sticks up maybe a half of an inch. Moving that thing down to a quarter of an inch picked up two miles per hour in average speed around Indy. Just that little wow. thing that, that sticks up in front of the cockpit. Now, the driver has to live with more buffeting, which doesn't slow the car down at all, but, uh, and the, the drivers get used to that, so the speed's worth it. But to get him, the, so one of the things they had to wean him off of in the, in the, in the test was just the, the height of that little deflector that they put there at the, at the front of the cockpit. And this thing is maybe a foot long and a half inch tall.
1: So that's it. <laughs> wow. And cutting it back to a quarter of the car picked up like two miles per hour. So John, I, 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 I can't tell you how happy I am to have you on this show because so many times things that I have taken so much heat over and, and, you know, it was just me saying it and, and he, you just, Touched on another example, because when I started studying trailer aerodynamics many years ago and I looked at the side skirts, I looked at the trailer tails, I saw all the problems. And then when I saw the smart truck system and really dove into it, you just said it the way I said it. This makes so much sense to me in so many ways, and then they had, when I went down there to, to spend time with them, and I spent a couple of days, and not only did I see all the CFD testing, I walked into the shop and I saw a truck with more sensors on it than I have ever seen in my life. They covered almost every square inch of that truck in sensors, and they were out running it. They were making deliveries and doing stuff with it, and I was blown away by the level of testing and the level of the people that worked there. They came from racing, they came from aeronautics, they came from NASA. I mean, it was crazy, the the quality of people they had. So I've been talking about the smart truck system for years and people would argue with me, that doesn't work. It, And then the, what really made this a tough argument was, I don't know if you saw this or not, there was a group up in Canada that decided to do their own test on trailer aerodynamics and I don't know what the hell they were smoking, but they came up with some crazy results like the side skirt trailer tail was getting, you know, nine percent and the smart truck system got two. And so everybody said, see, we were right. That thing doesn't work. And I said, that was one test. And I don't like I said, I don't know what they were smoking or how they tested it, but there's so much evidence to to refute that one. But that was the one everybody wanted to latch on to. So. I'm glad to hear you say basically the same thing I've been saying for years. And we'll be we'll be right back. We'll wrap that up and then we'll get to your calls and questions. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. I've got Bruce and Ethan and John from Pittsburgh Power with me. So, John, this report came out, I don't know, maybe two years ago. I'm really bad at time like that, but it was probably two years ago. And everybody made a big deal about it. And I tore into the numbers and, and showed why a lot of their testing was just flawed. I, to this day, I still have a guy that follows me around on Facebook. And no matter what I post, he will say, Yeah, but look how wrong you were about (laughs) Smart Truck. I I could be posting about uh, blood sugar control and he'll say, Yeah, but you were all wrong about Smart (laughs) Truck. That stuff's hard to live down. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, just crazy. All right. Uh, Should we get to some phone calls? Yes, absolutely. All right, let's do that. Let's start off in Michigan. Brian, welcome to the program.
4: Hey, Kevin. Thanks for taking my call once again. You're welcome. What's Um, on your mind? Well, I am calling to uh, ask basically just some generic advice. Uh, I recently turned around and uh, swapped over to a gentleman. I'm his first driver for him trying to build up a company. And um, he's bought a 379 that's got a Detroit 60 series in it, 12.7, and and that's been swapped into the truck from a 95 Freightliner with a 13 double over, 370 rear end with 24.5 rubber on it. And I'm just trying to uh, understand how I need to be running this truck to turn around and try to get
1: pretty decently good fuel economy what one word slow i mean there is nothing about this truck that says fuel economy other than the engine maybe the gearing but only I if agree. you drive really slow um you know the tall tires are lousy for fuel economy the aerodynamics obviously are atrocious for fuel economy um 13 speed no big deal there but you know it, you're gonna to wanna to keep this truck at sixty or less if you want to get the best fuel economy. And then your only other option really is to start looking at modifications and you just have to kind of live with the aerodynamics unless he's willing to do some heavy duty work. We've taken the classics and improved the aerodynamics quite a bit, but it gets expensive to do that. And I, I would I would bug him to to buy you a scan gauge KR and and you know, I, I can give Okay, well there you go. There's one of your best tools. There, there, that boost gauge. Uh, usually the 379 is a full gauge package, so I'm assuming you have a, a good boost and EGT. Yeah, yeah. So. Okay.
4: Um, and th- another thing with it is, um, uh, he's thinking that it's got probably about 500 since it had an in frame done, um, and right now the second that i turn around and get into any kind of boost whenever i'm heavy uh even just 12 pounds of boost it seems like the fuel mileage just falls on its face even if i'm going just 55 60 miles an hour um is it possible that's a sign that it needs to have an overhead ran
3: on it well let me let me ask you a couple questions the scan gauge, when you're at 12 pounds of boost pulling a grade, is telling you what?
4: Um, that my fuel economy just completely falls on its face. How far from I, I what go? What? I uh, I can go from a, like nine and a half, ten. I'll drop
3: all the way down into low fours, uh, sometimes twos, one. Okay. Now you see why we say you have to make a truck. So to get great fuel mileage, you have to be below six pounds of boost on the level. Years ago, we said you want to be 10 or less. And now to hit the eight miles to the gallon, you've got to, a lot of times be in that five, six pounds of boost range. And some of the items that we have that would help you would be the fleet air filters, the um, full tilt ported and ceramic coated manifold, our 15% larger turbo. You know it needs a damper and a balancer, and it needs the overhead set in the fast system. And with those items, you're probably going to gain a mile and a half to the gallon, and let's program the ECM for 500 horse to the ground. It'll make it much easier to drive, much smoother. You'll be able to maintain a more constant speed with less throttle, and there's your fuel mileage. And you hit the nail right on the head there when you said when you go 12 pounds of boost, how many pound or how many tenths of a mile per gallon that you lose and that's why it's so important for the people that do not have the scan gauge or a boost gauge to realize that you have to have those gauges to, in order to operate a truck for fuel mileage but think about that manifold and turbo that's huge
4: okay so i take it then that i'm i'm driving correctly when i go to come up to a grade and stuff like that, and I just kind of like um, baby the throttle and kind of let it gently go up the hill but gradually dropping through the gears to get up the and crest over to the hill
3: as easy as possible. Well, the way I, I do it is um, I like to charge your hill pretty good and realizing that there's no fuel mileage going up a grade, so you have to make your fuel mileage down the other side and across the river. But if you keep dropping gears and you say, Gee, "I want to stay under ten pound of boost going up this grade," that's impossible. And that's why we have five and six hundred horsepower. You have to use your power to get up and over the hill, but it's going down the other side and on the level that you have to make fuel mileage. And when you're in a rolling hill situation, you have to drive it like a roller coaster, charge okay. the hill going down and through the dip, and then ease on up the other side. Do not control in those rolling hills.
1: Yeah, and Brian, the difference there is when when you build an engine right, the way Bruce is talking about, and you've got that 500 horsepower healthy to the ground and the engine's tuned right, your foot isn't on the floor all the way up the hill. You've got the power to get up the hill without, you know, downshifting multiple times and keeping your foot glued to the floor. And that's why... We're using horsepower to get you up the hill, but it's a whole lot more efficient than an underpowered truck where you are foot to the floor the whole way and you can't even find a gear to get up the hill. So that's why all the performance upgrades help fuel economy so much. Let's go to Nevada. Rod, welcome to the program.
2: Hey, uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I got a question for Bruce and his gang there and uh, it's about engine balancing now i i read your uh, i read your articles pretty good every month i i read that 104 magazine a lot and uh i remember years ago you were saying how important it was to change the engine balancer and uh change the or uh balance the driveline at 500000 i got a dd15 engine it's a 2011 now could you comment on that and tell me what's up because some people say you don't have to do that some people say oh yeah you should do that and i don't
3: know well, well, well let me clarify the drive shaft a drive shaft if you talk to a good drive shaft shop a progressive one they'll tell you that about every half a million mile you should take the drive shaft into them and let them go through it straighten it and balance it so what i say is when you when you're going to put a clutch in the truck at that point, a lot of times that's at seven, eight hundred thousand. Take the transmission to a good transmission shop and have them put bearings and seals and replace the gears that are bad, because you already have paid for the labor to take it out. But you've also had to take the driveshaft down, so now the driveshaft's laying on the garage floor. Put it in the back of a pickup and haul it off to a good driveshaft shop, and if you spend eleven or twelve hundred, you're not paying labor twice to do that. So do the transmission and the drive shaft whenever you're putting a clutch on it. Drive shafts do bend and they do go out of balance and they can put them back. They can make them straight again. Sometimes they have to replace the tube. Sometimes they do it with a rosebud torch. And as far as balancing rods and pistons, we say to do that whenever you're doing your engine rebuild. And the balancer on the front of the crankshaft is the torsional damper. That is every half a million. And we make the Mercury filled engine balancer, which is similar to the balance that uh, you put in the um, synchromatics and the balance masters that you put on your wheels to balance it. So that helps to balance the crank, the rods, pistons, clutch, and the flywheel and the clutch discs. (laughs)
1: all right we're gonna get to a break and uh bruce when we come back you know um, he just mentioned it some people say oh you don't need to do that And i'm sure they were talking about the the damper um when we come back how many times have you heard that over the years and i know you were the one that introduced me to this and i hear it constantly so we'll be right back with more stuff more calls and questions right after this kevin rutherford Heads up, we're heading into the final segment of the first hour. We're going to come back into a second hour. Uh, looks like we have a lot of questions still on hold, but if it uh, looks like it's going to open up, I'll let you know. Here we go. <music> Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. I've got Bruce and Ethan and John with me from Pittsburgh Power. So, Bruce, how many times over the years since you've been talking about dampeners, have you heard that?
3: Oh, we probably hear it five or six
1: times a week. The average
3: mechanic never gets to leave his shop and he doesn't get to learn about these items. And when he's done after his 10 or 12 hours, he's tired he wants to go home and have a couple beers and relax, or cut his grass, and and so he doesn't get on a computer to study this. I was very very fortunate uh, back in around 1983. I called out the Cummins Engine Company. My very first phone call to them, and a lady answered the phone, and I asked for Mark. I, I asked for I need to speak to the engineer who designed Small Cam. CPL 695, it's a Magnum 400. Well, what did that mean to a receptionist? She didn't know that. She transferred me, and I kept asking the next person, the next person. I got transferred six times, and a Mark Chapel answered the phone, and he was the performance parts head engineer. And he said, yes, I designed that engine. And I said, Mark, I'm, I told him who I was and what we were doing and what we were doing with the small cam and big cam Cummins engines. The very next word out of his mouth was, could you help me turbocharge my John Deere tractor with a Yanmar diesel? I said, yes, <laughs> I could help you do that. And then he invited me out to the Cummins factory. So when you get, one you know, of the head engineers invites you to the factory, you go. You drop everything and you go. And, and the uh, Holiday Inn right there in Columbus, Indiana was very expensive he kept me a week there. He said, I need you to come back more often, and you're going to stay at my house. So I find myself every three, four weeks, I'm going to Columbus, Indiana. But one day he called me, and he said, when you're building these 700 and 800 horsepower big cam engines, you need to put two torsional dampers on the front of the crankshaft. Now, if the head engineer calls you, whether it's Cat. Mac Detroit Cummins, they call you, and here you are. You're in your early 30s, and you're doing this performance work. You listen, and I said, "Tell me about the torsional damper," because to me, it was a uh, harmonic balancer. Yeah, you know, from the race car days, it was a harmonic balancer. It's not a harmonic balancer. It's a torsional damper. So. He, he spent some time on the phone and told me all about it. We went out and we made some adapters, and we were running some big cams with two dampers on the front. And then I got a phone call. I think it was 1984. Cummins wanted me to come down to the Remand facility in July in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, we had to wear coat and tie back then, even in the plant. And as I'm going through the plant... There they are rebuilding torsional dampers, and there's an engineer there that's in charge of the remand line. And I stood there, and I talked to him for two hours about torsional dampers. And he said, if I owned a truck, I would be changing it every 380,000 miles. All right, so let's take the silicones that we had back then in the 80s as opposed to now in the 2000s. Chemicals have come a long way, the Teflon bearings that the damper rides on inside the big steel circle. It's the Teflon that wears out that impregnates the silicone. The silicone takes up the shock, and what do I want to say? Uh, Whenever the damper is spinning and the big steel ring inside is turning, the silicone cushions that, well, at about a half a million miles, it's basically almost locked up because the silicone has gotten hard. Just like if you take a tube of silicone and you use it once or twice, put it in your toolbox, you go back a year later, it's hard. And that's how I learned about the dampers. But the average mechanic never gets that opportunity.
5: Yeah, I mean, and a- That's it.